This episode of the Good Take Podcast is brought to you by no one in particular just yet, but we do have a great guest today. We have on uh, Mike Silver. Uh, Alex, how are you doing today? But before you say hi to Mike, we just wanted to, to give a quick check-in with uh, each other and our viewers. How, what's going on? I'm doing well. Really looking forward to this episode. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of really cool stuff, uh, some current events, some stuff about his career. Really, one of our, I think, our more in-depth interviews so far. And it was really, really fun to get to talk to him. We actually know him from yeah. way back when, so uh, it was cool to catch up with him. He, Mike hadn't seen our faces since we were in kindergarten, so it was quite a shock to his system, and I think it made him feel maybe uh, older than Tom Brady's arm. Um, should I not say that? I don't know. I don't um, know. But look, hey. Uh, before we get into the episode, we just wanted to let you guys know, uh, please like, share, subscribe, uh, leave comments, you know, rate us on Apple Podcasts, stuff like that. Uh, we really appreciate um, it when you guys do that. So, Yeah. But like, like Alex said, like, share, subscribe. And also give us a rating on, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and then, yeah, again, if you, if you guys can follow us on Twitter, at AlexHudden35, that's at AlexHudden, H-U-T-T-O-N, and the number 35. And then follow me uh, at zshust9, that's uh, at Z-S-H-U-S-T, and the number nine. Thanks, everyone, and let's get to the show. Alex and Devin with you, as always, and today we're very excited to be joined by Mike Silver uh, from the NFL Network, formerly Sports Illustrated. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. it. It is my distinct pleasure. I have not seen you guys since uh, you were very, very young, and uh, it kind of freaks me out. I, I mean, I've my my Wikipedia says that I was born in 1948, and that's a whole it's a whole other subject. And I my one of my kids is to blame, and I heartily endorse the. Uh, inaccuracy because it sets expectations low but uh yeah i i do feel really old when i see you guys like as oh, actual ad- adult human beings oh man it, scared you away yet? what's that I said I, I, it hasn't scared you away yet not yet but you know the night is young so okay okay all right we'll see um i guess i guess just to start sort of how are you doing with all this like covering the NFL in this crazy time um you know I mean I mean you know Patrick Mahomes got a 500 million dollar contract this offseason and it's not anywhere near one of the craziest stories of the year I mean, what is it what has it been like just sort of dealing with all of it well um I thank you for putting it like that um you know I saw something on Twitter uh I almost did a variation of a reply I did uh, a couple months earlier but somebody said something like you know, I heard that Nick Bosa got hurt in practice. I, I'm really, really worried about this, blah, blah, blah. And, like, you know, I, I think somebody asked me if I sh- they should be worried about something football-related. I said, you should be worried about a global pandemic and the impending, you know, loss of our democracy, something to that degree. But, yeah, so it's it's all a matter of perspective. But it, it has been a really weird offseason as a journalist who covers the NFL – and um, didn't affect me as much over the offseason. I do travel over the offseason some, but it really happened in the period where I would travel less. I do have a home studio, which you see behind me, and you know can go on TV from here. I can obviously write from here. I can call. I can text. So 
um, you know, it wasn't ideal, but it didn't hit me dramatically. It, you know, the way the pandemic affected me those months was more just watching my kids process it on, you know, just on a more personal level. But now that it's August and I would normally be traversing the country and going to camps, um, it is kind of weird. You know, I, I've been trying to stay connected, you know, through various, um, you know, texting, talking, all that. But it is hard. And one of the great things about training camp is sometimes, especially at the camps that are off campus, we can really get um, relaxed, uh, prolonged access that really doesn't exist too much in NFL journalism, on site at least, and um, anymore. And so, you know, being able to see people in a more casual setting, walking to the dining commons, walking from the locker room onto a college campus, um, getting a bunch of people either to reacquaint with or meet, um, getting phone numbers, replenishing phone numbers, all that's really important, let alone the, uh, you know, going to a bar in uh, Pittsburgh, New York, and uh, drinking heavily with the owner of the Bills in a cash-only establishment. So I got to actually buy those beers last when year. But so, you know. Wait, wait, wait. You, yeah, you so, buy those beers? Oh, well, it was cash-only. So when you're with the billionaire and he literally doesn't have any cash, you got to seize the opportunity. It's also weird for me because the owners are now technically my bosses. So I've said to them before in social situations so, or people who work for them, same line. Do you want to pay for this or do you want to pay for one thirty second of this? Because <laughs> I'll expense it in one way or the other. You're going you're gonna to get digged for at least some. But yeah, I mean, so training camp um, is an important time for me. You know, I, I remember uh, two training camps ago, um, going to Ravens camp early and just, you know, they weren't letting Lamar do a bunch of stuff and we were broadcasting on TV. And I just remember saying to the PR director, I just want to meet the kid. I've, I've heard really cool things. I'm kind of a fan. I know he's gotten a lot of shit about whether he's going to translate to the NFL. And I just remember having like a cool talk with him, not interviewing him, just short, just kind of like human and not for any work purpose, but you know, Last year when I was around all the time and even late the, his rookie season, when he'd see me, there was a familiarity there. And we kind of have always had that, you know, ability to connect to that moment. So there are many, many reasons. And I say that as someone who, when I broke into the business um, in 1989, as a beat writer for the now defunct Sacramento Union covering the 49ers, and uh, they trained in Rockland at Sierra College. And uh I, you know, we'd get an apartment up there for five months and uh, it was longer back then, but just being on that, you know, campus every day and, uh, you know, hanging out at the pool with Joe Montana and all sorts of other things. I mean, it's just, it's immeasurably important. And so, yeah, I am, I am struggling with that. And I am struggling with the notion that it's going to probably be this way the entire season in terms of access. But, um, you know, I don't particularly want to get on an airplane right now. My bosses don't want me to get on an airplane right now. Um, and obviously, it's, it's a lot bigger than, than this. I was going to ask, man, is, is Joe cool? Joe cool in the pool? That sounds like you said. He is, cool. he's, he's the coolest everywhere. I, I just remember yeah. somehow, see, like, I was on the 49er beat. You have to, it was a totally different time. So they were coming off their third Super Bowl championship of the 80s and we're about to win their fourth in 89 and uh 
I was young, uh, there were 15 newspaper beat writers who covered them every day, 12 papers, three of them doubled up. So most of those papers are defunct now. And, but I mean, it was a whole, it, and they were star studded. It was before the salary cap. Some of their backups had been all pros elsewhere. It's like covering a rock band. And uh, I just got to know Joe on a much different level because he was kind of exhausted by the press coverage and the way that he was covered and the same group of very good journalists, but who were pretty intense. And uh, one of the younger writers and I just kind of came at him completely differently and just, you know, wanted to kind of connect any way we could. And uh, he didn't see us the way he saw them. And I, I remember maybe my second or third year in training camp, you know, we were all stuck up there for weeks. And we ended up with Joe Montana and Steve Bono, who was then the third string quarterback um, at some rando bar in Roseville. And um, tequila shots were ordered. And of course, Joe was going to pay. He made, you know, a ton of money back then. And I think I was making 20000 a year and liking it, by the way. And uh, I remember saying, no, 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 no. I have, to, I have to buy one round of shots so I can write up an expense report that says tequila shots with Joe Montana. Because, you know, for all I knew, that would be, uh, you know, the pinnacle of my existence at that point. So, um, yeah, it was um, – Joe's the best. And really, it was an era where – as I went to Sports Illustrated in 1994 and started covering the whole league, um, the the franchise quarterbacks who were kind of the man and these larger-than-life figures were also invariably the coolest dudes. It was weird. It was less, you know, they were – yes, they were guarded to some degree, but they were also the guy who kind of ran things socially and understood – uh, the job of journalists on some level and, and could really uh, kind of cut loose in a suck the air out of the room type way. So your Marinos, your Elways, your Montanas, um, those were also the best dudes. It was a, it was a great time. That's really cool. Now I, you mentioned, you know, breaking into the business. So I, I guess I'm curious. So what's something that you learned along the way, like in, in terms of like advice you would give to people like our age who are trying to do just that. And then you mentioned like, seeing you know people like joe montana you know seeing you in a way that like he only saw, he didn't see anyone else so both in terms of breaking in and in terms of being successful and connecting with these superstars like how do you go about that and sort of being unique um so you know sort of like being unique sort of that in, like, in a way that like enables you to be as successful as you can you know does that make sense well well i can't reveal all my secrets but um you know i mean really it, it's, it's, a lot it's, it's comes, all the tequila shots obviously <laughs> and, and a lot of it comes back to people's skills right and yeah. nerve and so you know there are a lot of great parts of my job many many great ones the one that i would probably cling to the most if i had to strip the others away is not having to go into an office every day the same office you know changing it up moving around that part to me is just so uh, important. And obviously, there are some high level reasons why I love my job. And really, I wanted to be a journalist. And I was a, you know, I was someone who, from Watergate to the Pentagon Papers, and, and all these great, heroic acts of journalism that were going on when I was a little kid. Um, and in an era where journalists weren't kind of stigmatized as enemies of the people as much, and, and weren't uh, in pop culture always portrayed as kind of either cheesy or sleazy or some combination. I mean, th there were some real heroes who challenged the bullshit from the highest levels of society and uncovered truth. And, 
change the world. So, you know, I wanted to be a journalist, but anyway, there are some great things about my job. The hardest thing about my job, and there are some deep, you know, reasonably hard things for me is the swallowing of dignity. In other words, um, in real life, I might not say to uh, Peyton Manning in real life, like, hey man, can I just hang out with you Wednesday? I really want to, you know, can I just go with, can I just go to your house? Can I go to the cleaners with you? Like, you know, I, like if he wasn't into it, I just would never be that guy. Like I, I'm self-absorbed enough that I just wouldn't think anyone's, you know, that much better than me probably. But in at Sports Illustrated where I needed the access, in my opinion, to stand out and thrive and write things that, you know, you would read three days later that you hadn't seen. I was like, dude, please, please, can I just hang out, you know, sometimes. So it wasn't always that terrible. But, you know, there are a lot of times where you have to kind of um, push your nerve level higher than it would be in real life, whether that's, you know, um, you know, calling someone for the fourth time, as I just did an NFL head coach, who I'm hoping will call me back during this podcast and allow me to pause. But he probably won't, but he'll probably randomly text me at four in the morning when I'm asleep. So that's good because you know coaches. But anyway, um, you know, so that part's hard. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I decided to do very early on was to play the long game and to err on the side of relationships. So it, there's a compulsion to try to get every piece of information and break every story and use everything and be hyper aggressive. And I think you have to be tough and journalistic, but you, you know, you want to be sure that you've developed trust. So if there were gray areas or if there was some sense that somebody told me something in confidence, obviously I'd never, you know, use something that was off the record, but if it was a little gray and I, you know, if you follow up a lot of times they're going to go, yeah, don't use that. But, follow up, you know, make sure you are um, cultivating a legitimate relationship that has trust on both sides. And um, in the end, I think you'll do better that way, not just with that person, but in my world, especially in the NFL, it's a pretty small world. So things get around, you know, there've been a couple of occasions in my career where I've been accused by uh, upset people, usually coaches of, oh, you just befriend these guys and seduce them and get them to tell you something and then you burn them. And I always laugh and I go, well, don't you think if I did that, that word would get around fast, you know, and, and some of my proudest moments honestly have been um, like, for example, I was at Yahoo Sports when Des Bryant was getting ready to be drafted. He was a very polarizing figure before. Still is, honestly. 20, yeah, it was a 20, 2010 draft. I'm trying to remember the year. And, uh, you know, a lot had been written about him. And I was able to connect with him and spend the night before the draft alone with him in uh, in the Dallas area and then draft night with him. And he, he that was when he ended up telling me that uh, a general manager had asked him if his mother was a prostitute in a pre-draft interview. I later revealed with his blessing after the draft that it was uh, Dolphins, then Dolphins GM. Jeff Ireland. So, um, so people kind of said, wow, how did you get that? How, you know, how did you, you know, how did you think to go down and get Des Bryant and, or how did he allow it? And one of the coolest things for me is that what really happened is I thought it was a good story. And I found out that he was connected to Deion Sanders and who I now work with or did work with at NFL Network. He just left, but um, you know, a guy that I had covered, um, and we weren't, I've been tight with a lot of players, you know, super tight, but D 
Dion and I weren't like that, but we had a great relationship, journalist to player. He trusted me. Um, we had some some bad moments, but mostly good. And, um, you know, he, he had he had had years to kind of form an opinion of me. So I, I, when I called Dion and told him I wanted to do it and I hadn't talked to him in a long time, he basically called Des Bryant and said, trust this guy, just do it. And that's why I was there. So to me, like, I had a lot of pride in that, in that, you know, that's something that speaks to, um, you know, something I earned way back in the day by hopefully doing it the right way. So um, I just think, honestly, there are a lot of ways to be good at journalism, but really the, to me, it always came back to work ethic. And, you know, that to me, that might mean going out till four in the morning with someone, not, you know, tough jobs, someone's got to do it. But to me, that's work ethic too. Just any ability to get more access and grind harder. Um, and then toughness, uh, being willing to ask tough questions and write things or say things when they need to be said, um, not at all costs, but to be tough enough to do it and and then show your face afterwards. And then people skills, huge, you know, and I was lucky that I grew up in LA, um, went to public schools under a mandatory desegregation order, court order that gave us integrated schools. And I had the best of both worlds because we had kids voluntarily bust into our junior high and high school, but we were still absolutely racially mixed, you know, probably 50-50 in high school. And um, I noticed early on, you know, at 23, trying to cover the 49ers, I just noticed that most of the journalists were white males and very, very, very few of them were at least were comfortable um, talking to young African-Americans. And, and most of them probably were politically pretty enlightened about it. They just, they just didn't know a lot of them other than as reporter to athlete. And so to me, it was like, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it was just much more normal. And, um, you know, and then as I went on and started getting turned on to, you know, young rappers before they would have hit the radio and, you know, I happen to like rap. So, I mean, it just, it worked out well for me that way too. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic yeah. stuff. Now we wanted to ask you a couple of different things related to sort of current events uh, in the NFL. Obviously one of the big recent stories, George Kittle getting a massive extension, uh, highest paid tight end. Um, you wrote an article about that uh, for NFL network and talked about how his agent called the initial offer, uh, the Valentine's day massacre. Uh, <laughs> Correct. So, uh, yeah, go why ahead. Were the sides, yeah, why were the sides so far apart? And was there ever like a potential of this lasting very deep into the season? Um, well, first of all, I want to take this occasion to plug my podcast because I not only wrote an article, but then I talked to Agent Jack Becta on episode 13 of the Pass It Down podcast, all right. um, which, is my, which is my second favorite podcast. You guys are probably my third because I'm on. Oh, my but, um, but your it's old friend Greg, my son, yeah. you know, well, your on. old friend Greg, my son, has one called Potty Train Me that um, has yeah. been um, <laughs> just been a been a joy. He had he interviewed. That's the, the best uh, name for a podcast ever. Yeah, I, I, I mean, listen, I I don't know if I love the name, but it is called Potty Train Me, and uh, yeah, he uh, there were four guys at UCSB who played beer die for 24 hours uninterrupted and got some acclaim I guess on the Instagram die is life site and Greg did a very like uh uh you know very uh 
reverential interview of of them and uh he just had my good friend jeff darling to the vspn on and basically i got roasted for almost an hour but uh i somehow i'm still a fan so anyway uh the george kittle deal was tricky for a few reasons one um you know a lot of times these guys have rookie deals and then they become absolute studs and it's time to pay i'm an alvin Kamara or a um a, a Tredavious White. It was a first round pick, but it's easier to go from the artificially deflated uh, rookie wage scale money for a first round pick, which is horribly below market value, and that's collectively bargained by the union since 2011 and the league. But it is not really fair. But it's one thing to go from that low number. To, uh, it's another thing to go from fifth round money. So. Uh, based on the league's formula, he was going to get $2.133 million in the fourth year. He had made maybe a combined $2 million in his first three years, and now he's one of the best players in the league. So that was the first weird thing. And then the second thing is that the tight end market has just been weird, and these positions very much are adhered to as comparisons in these negotiations. And the last real market value tight end deal by anyone who had – you know, a free agent situation was Jimmy Graham in probably 20 to 2013, 2014. Ertz hasn't been free. Kelsey hasn't been free. Gronk has taken below market deals. So it really wasn't um, the tight end market. It really wasn't fair to judge him by the tight end market. And I think they had a very fair or reasonable case, which is he's not really just a tight end to you. He's your best receiver. And look what wideouts make. He is your most prolific receiver. Um, I'm not a big uh, metrics dork, but there are some metrics from next-gen stats that I've cited that show what their running game is with him on the field versus him not on the field, and specifically the outside runs, and it's, like, staggering the yeah. impact that he has made. And anecdotally, I would agree. Like, he's they when he's on the field blocking, they are formidable um in Especially the running game when and Trent Williams blocking together they can just run the ball to the left side like every yeah season. right well and you've got Kyle Shanahan who I've known since exactly. he was 14 and uh Mike McDaniel like j just brilliant people when it comes to changing up the running game and utilizing has, has he always been has Kyle always been just like a freaking whiz genius well he's always been uh yeah he's always been different and he's you know he's always been uh he's he's always kind of absorbed it but uh yeah i just remember this i'll get back to kittle in a sec but i just remember this one story where uh the broncos are getting ready to play the um packers in super bowl 32 which is the first one they won and uh it's in san diego and i knew mike shanahan very very well he'd been the 49ers offensive coordinator my last year uh at newspapers and then covered him in si a lot and uh he was going to give me some time two days before the game when I was at SI. And he said, just come to practice and then they'll, they'll take me back in a limo. You'll ride in the limo with me and then we'll go to my hotel suite in La Jolla and, um, you know, and then we'll talk. So we did all that. And when he got to the suite, he wanted to take a shower and, and he took like forever to get ready, um, like an hour maybe. But he left me in a room with Kyle. Um, who was maybe 16 and, and beer, by the way, for me at least. And so I had a beer. I had, his, I had Kyle, who I knew, but um, I just 
I, I remember talking to Kyle for like an hour and I don't think we ever talked about football. It was literally me going, dude, what's it like in high school, man? You're, you're Mike Shedhead's son in Denver. Like, how's that? Are the girls digging that? You know, like literally just, I was so fascinated by, you know, what his life might, must be like in Colorado where Mike can become this big figure. So um, anyway, so Kittle, um, I, I think it was tricky. I don't think he would have played this year under that number. And if he if it had gotten to that point, it might have been like, hey, trade me, which they probably wouldn't have done. But I also think the 49ers were going to get it done. And because it was such a weird offseason, you know, so it was just it, – it wasn't as linear as it normally would have been. You know, there was that – you referred to the Valentine's Day Massacre. Well, then, you know, they traded Buckner and kept Armstead and saved some money that way, which was kind of – weird and then a pandemic hit and we don't know what the revenue stream is going to be and owners are freaking out and then they also had to do kyle and john lynch's deal which is weird because okay you're paying them but you know here's our guy and um normally kittle probably could have expressed his displeasure by not going to some otas or skipping a voluntary minicamp or something but you can't you know doing that on zoom it doesn't really have the same effect and the, lastly, the deadline for getting it done realistically was probably later because you want to get it done before you're really practicing and putting yourself at injury risk. But they reported July 28th. They didn't really hit the practice field till like August 17th. And so that's really when it ratcheted up. But I, I do think it could have gotten messy and both sides had – chips to play but I also think that when the will is there on the 49ers part like look let's just this guy's so important he's so important in our locker room he's so good let's get this done ultimately they were going to find a happy medium nice now speaking of franchise turmoil this whole Earl Thomas thing kind of came out of nowhere he's never really had a terrible reputation I know things in Seattle got a little bit rocky I, I know there was some like there's a little bit but I don't know I always interpreted that as a function of just kind of Pete Carroll, like loving the chaos right. and the Legion of Boom and just that kind of, I, I, I always imagine that being just kind of planned. And the Ravens have always been a structured, kind of a really well-respected organization. And obviously like training him, fights happen all the time. So sure. Like obviously this, this didn't come out of no. Yeah, go ahead. I have, I have some thoughts. Uh, okay. Yeah. So first of all, oh, yeah. first of all, you're right about Pete and that culture they empower and the Ravens are very similar. Yeah, that's and, why and, I didn't, Exactly. And honestly, like I, they probably are my two favorite franchises to cover of the last, you know, since Pete got there and for the Ravens, even before that, the Ravens really dating back to really the beginning of the Ravens with Ted Barchabrota, but certainly the Billick and then Harbaugh Ravens and Ozzie Newsom. Um, I've told, I've told people this. I've told Steve Bishotti, the owner, I've told Pete, I've told John Schneider, like I, I really, like covering those teams I, I admire them a lot for a lot of reasons and the biggest one is that they let big personalities be big personalities and you know whether that's Terrell Suggs or Richard Sherman and and all down the line and and so I really um I agree with all of that I I think you know sometimes the great artists among us are passionate people and they're high maintenance you know and so Earl is high maintenance. I think he is like some greats before him, like your junior Seau's and, and other people. He has a 
penchant for freelancing and uh, taking chances. And sometimes that can be brilliant. And sometimes that can really frustrate coaches and teammates. Um, he has an incredibly high opinion of himself as a player, which, you know, many of the great ones do, but that, you know, there's a lot of pride there and he's, he's kind of volatile. So yes, all that existed in Seattle and it worked um, and it did get messy at the end in Baltimore. It just has always been brewing and it was bad last year and they kind of yeah. held it together because of the strength of that organization. And it was bad when they got back this year. Um, and you're so, right I, about really quick. Their chemistry seemed incredible last year. So that's yeah. surprising for me to hear you say. It, yeah. it was, it was, but I would say his, his, he, it wasn't as destructive as I'm making it sound, but I, you know, I think when a guy's not on point, both on the field and off the field in terms of punctuality or adhering to assignments, sometimes it, it, rub some people the wrong way so now um i have seen a lot of fights don't get me wrong and usually in training camp this is the fight it is two guys have been going at each other back and forth for days and it's getting chippy and it's hot and it used to be two days and they're just pissing each other off pissing each other off and finally one guy throws the other to the ground and then they just snap and the guy gets up and punches them, sometimes with helmet and pads, sometimes not, and it gets broken up. That's a more uh, understandable kind of training camp fight. The training camp fights that stand out for being uh, outliers are the ones where they either weren't in the middle of practice or they're on the same side of the ball, in this case, same position group. So what you had in this case was Earl blew an assignment, um, the other safety, Chuck Clark, got upset that he had blown an assignment. Um, Earl basically said, hey, come on, man, I got it. What are you worried about? And he said, you know, no, it's not okay. And he, Chuck Clark said something to the effect of, if you, you know, went, if you showed up for walkthrough or weren't late to meeting, something like that, you know, you'd, you'd get this. And then it escalated. So, um, I, you know, Stephen Davis of the Redskins uh, um, got punched in the face by Michael Westbrook, a, a teammate, a wide receiver punching a running back uh, with the Washington Football Club is what they're now called. Um, football, team. Uh, football team. Yeah, that's right. Washington Football Team. Heaven <laughs> forbid we, you know, extricate the nickname denoting a skin color, perceived skin color of a subjugated American uh, ethnic group, uh, you know, that horrible that we would ever want to rename that, but here we are. Um, so yeah, um, Steve Smith, my now NFL network colleague punched, uh, cornerback Ken Lucas, it broke his nose in Carolina. Uh, not sure if it was in training camp, but it was not during practice. So it was, you know, that was a more memorable fight. So, and listen, it, I, I mean, let's be clear. Uh, if Lamar Jackson punched, you know, uh, Marcus Peters in the face at trading cap, it would not be a good thing, but probably those guys have enough goodwill in the bank and don't have a history in, in Baltimore of, you know, these other things. And it's probably not a big deal. So it's more that they had kind of reached a breaking point with Earl. And I don't mean just coaches. I mean, most people in that building, including teammates, and 
now he was kind of in that zone where people were sick of what was going on. And then that happened. So, um, you know, he's one of the best players I've ever seen. I don't want to just sound like I'm completely shitting on the guy. Like he is, I love his passion. He is absolutely one of the best players I've ever seen. He is a phenomenal football player who has made some incredible plays and was part of those great Seahawks teams. And I hope it doesn't just end like this, you know, because the legacy is so precious that he's built up. So he's going to get in the Hall of Fame, and do you think uh, are, are, is Jerry Jones just licking his lips, just trying to pounce all over him? You know, I don't know, because, I mean, if he is, he could be getting it done right now, I suspect. I don't believe there are a lot of teams lining up to pay him what he thinks he's worth right now, and it's not an advantageous time, and the cap's probably going down next year. We're in a p- pandemic. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think, you know, I would say this. Um, just as the Ravens' strength of organization and culture and tolerance um, ability to tolerate big personalities is a bonus. It's also doesn't help the player when he gets released under these circumstances. Cause I think if you're Jerry and Steven Jones and Mike McCarthy, you go, wait, well, wait, you know, this is Baltimore. Like probably this didn't go well for a reason that Earl's at least somewhat responsible for. Whereas, you know, I, they're put it this way. If Matt Patricia released the guy, you know, who might not have been down with the program. I think a lot of teams will go, yeah, well, that's Matt Patricia. That's, you know, he's trying to be Bill Jr. And it's authoritarian and stupid and we'll get him at our place and it'll be fine. Whereas, you know, I think that Raven organization is so good at this that people are going to want to do some vetting. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes, makes sense, 100%. Um, now, we wanted to ask about, a uh, certain player on a certain team, um, you know, you've introduced, um, just how you mentioned Greg, you've introduced him to Aaron Rodgers before, you know, he's turned into something of a Packers fan. Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time around Aaron Rodgers. What do you think that situation will be like going forward? Because obviously the Packers drafting Jordan Love this offseason, like, and so there's been these portrayals in the, in the media of Aaron Rodgers and his personality and sort of the way he, you know, treats his teammates and reacts to being the way he's treated by the front office and the coaching staff. Do you think that's miscast? Do you think it's accurate? What do you see going on there? Uh, great question. So, um, so you know, my wife and I went to Cal, and later our daughter Natalie did. So, unfortunately, poor child, it's been passed on. But we are Cal zealots and Cal propagandists, and it's it's largely a futile pursuit when it comes to football over the years. But um, when Aaron was when Aaron was there. Uh, with Marshawn Lynch as a freshman, we were fantastic and should have gone to the Rose Bowl and got fucked over by a set of certain rules that no longer exist and I had a voting controversy and a whining Texas coach. And I, I still that, can't look at Mac Brown without, yeah. without thinking about that. I yeah, know. I mean, other than the 2016 election and probably the 2000 election, it's, you know, right up there with the biggest atrocities. Of... You, you left out Draymond Green's suspension. <laughs> no, I can live. I went to game six in Cleveland. I went to the, the suspended game. I, I grew up with Steve Kerr in uh, L.A. He was my gonna ask you about high, him high school writing partner. We'll get to that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so I have good warrior perks. But, um, yeah, so um, when Aaron was a Cal, we obviously cheered. And when he got drafted, Greg was had just turned nine. Robbie was still five. And so 
they didn't really have a team. I grew up a 49er fan, but I can't really be a fan. You know, once I started covering the NFL, it just, that all goes away. So I, you know, I didn't have a team and uh, they just decided we're Packer fans when Aaron went there, you know, he wasn't even playing. It was Brett Favre's backup. So, um, so that was before they met him. So they got psycho into it and then got to meet him a couple of times, which was really cool. But um, so the Packer thing has now, my wife, Leslie, has, through osmosis, gotten very into the Packers uh, because her sons are. And um, on draft night, normally I would be somewhere and trying to get into a war room somewhere. And I've been fortunate enough to do that. And I think I would have been in a war room this year. I know I would have, but the best I could do because of our situation was virtual access. And there were no war rooms because even the GMs and coaches and owners and everyone else were separated. But I did get virtual access into Jaguars general manager, Dave Caldwell's draft room, which was um, the access came through the house party app, which I was not on house party until I was told, hey, you should do this by Dave. And then his wife, Joelle, graciously held, held her phone. Uh, and via house party chat, I got to watch the really the first few rounds. And, uh, and so I wrote, they had two picks. It was an exciting first round for them. And I, I was going to write something pretty extensive on it. Um, but at some point, I was over here in my office where I am now. But over that way is uh, where we eat dinner. And so at some point, they were like, hey, come eat something. So I was just taking a break, getting a little food in me. And um, the Packers traded up because we probably would have stopped to see what the Packers did because they all care. But the Packers kind of snuck up on us to trade it up. And I'm a little ahead on my phone um, because I have people inside the draft's ahead of the telecast. And I have enough people who have, you know, usually they're in a draft room. In this case, they were just on the official NFL wire, but I knew enough people, so I was a little bit ahead. So we're sitting there eating dinner, and I get a text on my phone, and I had talked to Matt LaFleur earlier that day and, um, you know, kind of thought I had a sense of what they were thinking, and they trade up, and then I see on my phone, like, holy shit, they're taking a quarterback. Wow. And it, and I knew all about Jordan Love, but I I didn't even say it. I didn't have the heart to break it to them, so I just kind of kept eating. And then all of a sudden, it came on the TV, and you know, Greg and Robbie were kind of like, "What?" And it wasn't just, "Hey, you took a quarterback, and we love Aaron Rodgers." It was it was the triple whammy of it's a receiver rich draft. We figured you'd go receiver here, or maybe take Patrick Queen because we couldn't really stop the run against the 49ers, That type of thinking. That was the first layer. The second layer was you traded up. Like it wasn't like you just sat there and let Jordan Love fall to you and said, this guy, like when Aaron Rodgers fell to them in 2005, you traded up here. And then thirdly, you took a quarterback. Then they took a running back when they have Aaron Jones, the next pick. And, um, but anyway, so Greg and Robbie were kind of like, what? But Leslie, who normally, you know, is a little more detached, just start tweaking and going, you got to call Matt LaFleur, call Matt LaFleur. So it was pretty funny. So when Matt finally called me back the next morning and I wrote about it and he's, I, I said, I know I texted you seven times and called you twice, but my wife is fucking on my ass right now. So, you know, that's what happened. So it was funny. But uh, yeah, so here's what I think. Um, first of all, people freak out when there are perceived when there's perceived quarterback drama and 
they don't have the frame of reference that I do. For example, Joe Montana and Steve Young, who were teammates for six years, uh, two future Hall of Famers. One, I would argue, is the greatest of all time. The other is an unbelievable first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, and they did not have a great relationship. I had a much better relationship with each of them than they had with each other, um, probably because there was no internet back then. And they only saw, you know, I was, I was working for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, which was outside the circulation area. So they only saw what I wanted them to see. But, uh, you know, um, the tension of that relationship was insane. And then Rogers Favre was pretty intense and I've seen others, but so, you know, my threshold is pretty high. Um, and then, you know, um, I would just say this, um, the coaches are going to play the person they think is the best player. They know clearly that that's Aaron Rodgers right now. And that will be, the guy who plays for the foreseeable future. And I think Aaron gets how the coaches feel. And I think there's an alignment there. This was not perceived as a Matt LaFleur pick, nor should it be. With all of that said, as I said to Matt LaFleur, hey, don't worry about it. It's not going to be an issue for you unless he ever gets injured, he ever plays a little bit badly, or you ever lose a game. Other than that, it, there's no way it will ever, you know, rear its ugly head. So honestly, like as someone who's known Matt for a long time and just really appreciated what he got thrown into last year and how he handled it and um, and what they were able to do, I part of me just feels for Matt a little bit that, you know, it's going to be a thing. And he's not trying to make it one, but, you know, it is what it is. Now, the last my, my last note on this is – um, I had one offensive coach that I respect a lot tell me before the draft, a couple weeks before the draft, he said, I would take Jordan Love one overall. He goes, I, I know not everybody sees it that way. He goes, I've never seen a guy with this much talent, and I'd give anything to coach him. And I, he goes, if I had the first overall pick, I would take him there. So not every coach thinks that, but um, I do think it is um, – you know, we are talking about an incredibly high ceiling. So we'll see. That's so interesting. I, honestly, I've, I've never heard anyone say that. I, it's funny. I mean, I, the, all the questions obviously were about like Tua and, you know, they, they, they yeah. never, he was never even sent there. We did want to ask you about a quarterback on the older side. Uh, well, we couldn't have you on without asking, like, who is going to win the divorce, uh, you know, Brady and Belichick. Um, so number one, uh, is it unreasonable for me to think that Belichick and Cam's personalities are, is going to be like the worst mix like of all time. Not unreasonable and, at all. No. It's number two, I, it seems like, like the way Brady's always played and the way type of offense that Bruce Arians has always wanted to run are a little bit diametrically opposed. So how are those kind of like personalities kind of crossing and then play styles crossing? How, how are those going to work out? And what do you think has a better chance of succeeding? Well, I think that my first caveat is if this were a normal year where Brady could have just shown up in the building in March and completely, you know, and he and B.A. could have just completely mapped it out every second of every day. And then he could have sucked the air out of that facility and made everybody, you know, align and do it his way from the beginning um, and have all those reps. Um, that would have been a better 
state of affairs for Brady. I still think Brady, I'm still going to say Brady, but that's my first caveat. This is not a normal offseason. And existing structure and familiarity and establishment is going to do better um, than new. Um, and, you know, depending on how COVID potentially affects things. But if all other COVID factors being equal, um, an existing structure with familiarity is going, you know, the Chiefs and Niners are in a much better position than, you know, a place where you've got a new coach or a new quarterback or a new coordinator or, you know, a lot of new. Um, that said, um, what Brady is experiencing and Gronk too is, you know, the Prague Spring for you young people. That's uh, a reference to 1968 when then Czechoslovakia was uh, having a little bit of a uh, uh, an uprising of freedom behind the Iron Curtain. But, you know, it, it's fun. Uh, Arians could not be any more different as a human than Bill. Uh, you know, and Bill is a phenomenal coach, but it's joyless over there. And, and, you know, it's very possible that they led the league by far in opt-outs because of individual circumstance and people who just felt that way about COVID. But it's also fair to ask if, uh, you know, environment has something to do with that. And do you want to risk, do you want to take that risk in an environment that is pretty joyless? And, and I, I know they put up a fight sometimes and try to argue that it's not joyless, but if you, if you got any, player who's been there over the last two decades and gave them truth serum they would tell you that it's not a super fun place to be it's fun to win I guess and you know there's a lot there are a lot of good things about it and he's a great coach um, but it's not fun and I I don't think people appreciate how much of Brady's decision was based on just wanting to be somewhere different and let me you know let me just put it this way I, I just I'll try to do it like this Imagine that you're 43 years old. Imagine it's that you hard are, to imagine. Yeah, right. Okay, 42. Uh, yeah, right, because we've left you a fucked up planet and all that, which hopefully you'll fix. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, so imagine you're 42, 43, and you are the best person who has ever worked at your company. No one's ever done it better than you at that company. And some people think you're the best person who's ever done what you do at any company. And that's a fair argument to be made. But at the very least, no one at your company has ever done the job as well as you did. And you had this boss who liked to upbraid you in front of your coworkers all the time. Just, you know, uh, anytime you did something wrong, he would just MF you and tell you, you ain't shit. Well, I know people on the outside hear of that about Belichick and go, oh, well, that's his way of showing everyone that no one's above it. And if I can do it to Brady, then you have to fall in line. And it's kind of, people think it's kind of charming, but on a human day-to-day -day level of how you experience your reality, I don't think it's as charming as people think. I think you don't really love it after a while. And so I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did. I, and he finally reached a point where he wanted to be somewhere else every day. And he's free. He and Gronk are both free. So I just think there's a lot of 
joy there. He's a relentless competitor. He's a ruthless competitor. He is living, breathing, and sleeping. But he's also got to be enjoying his day-to-day, and he will enjoy Bruce Arians. And so to me, it's not, oh, does he take seven-step drops or does the offense function this way or that way? Arians coached Peyton Manning. He coached Ben Roethlisberger. He knows how to do this with a larger-than-life quarterback. And he thinks Brady can still throw deep pretty well, by the way. But um, more important, it's just the the day-to-day vibe is going to be great. And then to circle back, yeah, I do think it's fair to wonder about Cam and Bill. And we don't know what Cam we're getting. And that's interesting on a lot of levels because um, Cam, you know, when things are going well, Cam is this ebullient mm-hmm. kind of um, captivating Steph Curry presence. Yeah, it just really, it's really cool. But when things aren't going well, you know, he's infamously sat there. I happen to have a towel here. So, you know, he has done this, you know, on the, on the, <laughs> on the bench. And, and I think he didn't have his, mo- you know, last year he didn't have his mojo, even though, you know, yeah, he had a foot injury that ended his season ultimately. And he was coming off the shoulder, but he does, he's not Superman in, the, he doesn't exude that. So, all of those things you have to think about and how will he fit into their weird culture? How will Bill tolerate it? And lastly, I would just say this, everybody talks about the Patriots culture as an existing thing. And and I don't want to discount that. And I know that Matt Castle went 11 and five when Brady was hurt in 08. And I know that Jimmy Garoppolo and Jacoby Brissett won games when Brady was suspended. And, um, I know those coaches are really, really good and will find a way to, to maximize things. But A, they lost a lot of guys. They didn't just lose Brady. And at some point, you need elite players to win football games. And they have, like, an elite corner. And they got a couple other guys who I think are pretty good. But they're not exactly, uh, you know, oozing with game changers on paper, at least. And then the last thing is this. Yes, there is a culture there, and yes, that culture will allow them to continue to succeed, but it's not just a Belichick culture. Tom Brady is responsible for a, a decent amount of that culture, and I think one thing that I made a, an error in the last few months was when I thought about losing Brady, I thought about it too much from a football perspective, but I, I'm trying to be more mindful of that now. They're losing a guy who... Um, helped that place be what it was in terms of tone and vibe and relentlessness. And you can't just replace that either. Nice. Um, now speaking of uh, uh, miserable places, uh, it's probably not been a more uh, miserable place than uh, Cleveland, Ohio uh, with the Browns. Uh, obviously they got way over hyped last year. I'm very happy to say that I was on the correct side of things, just like constantly like rolling my eyes in the preseason like I mean, you can see on first take, like, could the Browns go to the Super Bowl? I was just like, it's oh no, I plead ridiculous. guilty. I was, I was, uh, I went really there. well. I, I mean, listen, it was kind wow. of shtick in that they fired one of my best friends ignominiously, uh, Hugh Jackson, who uh, I've known, I'm very close with, and um, I know a lot about 
you know, a lot of backstory about how it was not an optimal situation for him. Now, when you lose games, you get fired. So I don't mind him getting fired because a lot of my friends get fired. It's just the way the business is. But I don't like what, well, I just don't like when people get turned into a cartoon character. And uh, I have a lot of kind of resentment about it and, and a lot toward Baker about the way he conducted himself. And I was not a, you know, I was being shouted down by just about everybody else. There are a few of us who, thought Baker was being a kind in my opinion an, an insolent punk at the time and I would have said that about any player acting that way about any coach and I you know and the racial part of it wasn't lost on me as I said to people if imagine if Lamar Jackson had been doing that if Har you know there was talk Harbaugh could get fired that year if Lamar Jackson had been doing that to Harbaugh when he took another job after he got fired or if you know, I mean, you could go with countless examples. It would have been excoriated. But anyway, I think I think Baker's grown, and I'm I'm open to trying to. You know, he says he's going to kneel this year. That's kind of exciting. But um, I was coming off kind of that, and uh, you know, I think most Browns fans, between uh, some of the things I said uh, during his tenure and just you know afterwards, and and then my side occupation on Twitter, which is as a lifelong Warrior fan who, uh, you know, like to have fun with that. I went to two victory parties at uh, Morton's in Cleveland uh-huh. and stayed up all night. And uh, and by the way, so I was born in San Francisco, grew up in L.A., um, rooted for the Niners and the Warriors and the A's and Giants and was at my school was pretty much the only one and got just pummeled for it by everybody including uh my friend steve who later went on to become their coach so he knows i i won in the end and he and so he knows how much all of it meant to me when they got that good and uh you know i've had some great perks along the way but anyway so i did go the other way last year in that i just thought it would be fun to fuel the hype how, how, how about this year then? Are they becoming too underrated to the point where they might be too, too many people are picking them reverse? <laughs> well, it's, kind of, it's kind of like the city of Cleveland. When I was younger, everybody used to say what a horrible place it was. And then it became overrated for a while because it got a little better. And people used to go, man, you know, Cleveland's pretty good. And at some point it went, exactly. from, it went from what it was to overrated. And, you know, now I would say it's, you know, probably closer to being – not my favorite city, but listen, yeah. um, I, Me so too. Anyway, yeah, right. So I, I fueled, I fueled some of the hype too, and I had fun with it. And I had, uh-huh. I'll just say this. There were some, uh, there were some other people around the league who I think without me telling them seemed to catch on to the vibe I was going for. And I started early and I, I got great text messages every time I went on and said, Hey, with this kind of talent, they are legitimate Super Bowl contenders. And I got a lot of positive reinforcement from, you know, other people who might have high level positions around the league and figured it out. So it was a fun, it was fun stick. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I'm actually, um, I'm a really, really, really big fan of the young man they hired as their general manager, Andrew Barry. He's 32 years old. Um, he went to Harvard. He, um, he was in that kind of analytics camp, but he also he he was Ryan Grigson's right hand man in Indianapolis when the Colts went from uh, you know worst in the league, the, coming off worst in the league season when Peyton got hurt, and 
what made the playoffs the next three years. That was, that's when Bruce Arians was the interim coach that first year when Chuck Pagano got sick. And they accomplished a lot, uh, a lot that they're not given credit for as a personnel staff. And I've known Andrew for a long time and just kind of followed him. He was in Cleveland and then he left to go to Philadelphia and they brought him back. So um, I think he's really sharp and I think they're aligned more than they've been um, certainly since Jimmy Haslam bought the team and probably for longer. And because of that alignment and because of my faith in him um, and because I do think Baker's kind of, you know, starting to grow up a little bit. I, I, I think I, I actually have some decent hopes for them. I'm not saying, Oh, they're going to the Super Bowl, but I think they have a chance to, to get that into a, a better zone. So let's hope they just, you know, don't get caught up in the craziness. Let's hope that, neither of their starting receivers is saying, come get me to opponents during games or after games. Yeah. Cause uh, Odell oh, and Jarvis. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I reported that Jarvis Landry um, uh, had done that in a game in Arizona against the Cardinals at their sideline during the game. And well, there were rumors he, that Odell did that something similar to Odell. Odell had already done it a bunch. Yeah. And, and I, I reported that Jarvis did it and he indignantly denied it. Like, could not have been more pissed at, at me personally and the report. And my response was kind of an eye roll, like, dude, you did it to a sideline. Do you think I might have sources who were on, you know, good sources who were among the, what, 100 people on the Arizona Cardinals home sideline during a football game? I might, you know, there may be people I know uh, on all, at all levels of that operation who – might have heard you so deny it all you want but when you yell it to a sideline during a game i'm going to stand by my stand. nice now like you said just a few more questions to wrap up you talked about steve kerr um you've been lifelong lifelong friends with him so first of all you know you guys met in high school i believe like how did that friendship start junior high yeah junior high yeah. how did it evolve what's it been like you know hell what did you think if someone would have asked you what's more likely that a football player gets signed to a half a billion dollar contract or the Golden State Warriors are going to be on a dynasty. <laughs> and Steve Kerr, your friend's going to coach. Like, like how has it evolved over the years? Like, what's it been like to just, you know, be, you know, have a, have a bromance with him? Like, what's it been like? I know, I know I've tried to explain it to Greg before. I'm like, imagine if, you know, blank friend that you're, you know, growing up with. Imagine if he became the coach of the Packers when you were older and they're better than they've ever been you, you know, and, and they dominate. Like, it's just crazy. You know, so Steve and I really got bonded in, a, uh, in an American history class in high school. Um, and we were probably the worst students because we were always talking and joking amongst each other. We created a hockey league. The teacher's name was Mr. Nathanson. So we called it the NHL, the Nathanson Hockey League, against the backboard. And there was a poor young woman who sat in between us who was part of the part of the ice but it had to do with the chalkboard and pencils and little pieces of paper and obstacles and we would stage actual games during class but our favorite thing to do was so back then Howard Cosell was the iconic announcer who Monday Night Football was the biggest game of the week and so we loved to imitate Howard Cosell and our the best day of the week was always Tuesday morning because we had new material, but we would do things like in class to each other, we would go that the Indians fought back Geronimo, the little known general, 
from the Cherokee tribe. Look at him. But Georgie Custer, the little known speedster. Uh, I, I, we would just, we had so much fun um, really spoofing all things about all conventions of sports. We both love sports, but we love to, to spoof the conventions of it. And Steve had this incredible knack for doing prank calls to the, not just the sports talk station, but the, the psychologist. I mean, there's, some, there's a cassette tape. There's a cassette tape somewhere with these legendary calls, and um, it just was always hilarious. And uh, and I remember, like, you know, so he played 15 years in the NBA and uh, retired as the all-time leader in three-point percentage, which he still has. He has. Uh, although although and, Seth Curry is right on his heels, though. Yeah, well, hopefully he won't catch him. I, I would allow Steph, but I'm not allowing Steph. But, uh, yeah, um, and, you know, and won five championships, and I got I became very close with Dennis Rodman, did a book with him, so I got to, you know, I, I got to hang out with him when he was on the Bulls a lot. But but um, I just remember early in his career. Uh, I have, like, two questions kind of, about that now. Wow. Yeah, so the early in his career. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you think much, of it? But, yeah, wow. I mean, I was real emo, not just because of Dennis, but like, you know, seeing Steve's mom and, you know, mm -hmm. this, the footage of Malcolm and uh, it was, it was a lot. And, you know, I was the Rodman 30 for 30, which aired in the fall. I was in a lot of that and it was really fun. And uh, I, I, quick aside, I just yeah. can't believe there's no video footage of us that seems to exist because we were the most conspicuous people ever when we went out with Rodman. We would we had no VIP rooms, no, nothing hidden. We were always in the middle of the shit show, like with interacting with everyone. It's just, there were no cell phone cameras. So anyway, so Steve, I'm just trying to give you an idea of how he thinks. So he called me one time and said, yeah, you know, I haven't been playing much, but it's been fun. We've been having fun on the road. And one of the stories he told me was um, they were playing the Nuggets and the Nuggets star player at the time was, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who used to be Chris Jackson, he's really a Steph-like kind of guy, just an incredible scorer, a guard, probably shorter than Steph and slight, but a guard who was just an incredible scorer. Obviously not as great a shooter as Steph, because I don't think anyone's ever been, but was a, a phenomenal shooter and just had a knack for scoring. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. He was a star at LSU. He changed his name. He was the first guy to protest the anthem in major sports. And it was during, I think, the, the Iraq War, maybe the first Iraq War. Um, and he just said, I feel like, you know, people are being subjugated. He had good reasoning for it. And it was a thing. And um, he also had Tourette's or has Tourette's and had to kind of conquer that. And um, there was a lot going on. But Steve's favorite, what his note on it was, you know, we're playing the Nuggets and Every time he scored the over the PA, he goes, you know, the song, whoop, there it is, which was really popular at the time. It was this cheesy hip hop, you know, whoop, there it is. He said, every time he scores over the PA, they go, Rauf, there it is. He goes, <laughs> and we just, he goes, we loved it so much. He goes, so we were on the bench. All we cared about was hearing it again. He goes, so we're on the bench literally rooting for our opponent to score as long <laughs> as it's him so we can hear it again. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the way he's wired. And he's very good at making fun of himself, too. So I enjoyed the journey all the way through. But then, you know, when he took the Warrior job, it was just surreal. And 
I, I just, uh, you know, I texted him, obviously, you know, I knew he was considering Knicks and Warriors and it, I texted him when he took it and he, he texted back and said like, dude, I remember you doing like Bill King calls on the radio, you know, well, Bill King was the Warriors legendary announcer and you could on the transistor, you could get KMBR, the 50,000 watt station at night sometimes fading in and out. So imagine me in my room as a kid with the crackly transistor listening to Bill King in and out calling Warrior games, you know, like till what, 10 at night or whatever they ended. So um, the great thing is he remembered. But I mean, listen, I, I'm really proud of him for all those things. You can tell by the way I talk about him as a player and, and as a coach. But honestly, what Steve Kerr is, is he's your guy. He's the guy who's like your buddy when you're young and he's great. Everything about him is great. And then as an adult, it, it's only better. And that's pretty rare, you know, right? It, it's just, I'm so much more proud of the, the man he's become, the, the husband and the father and the person and the citizen. And so, um, you know, those are the things that, you know, kind of choke me up. But there's, I'll, I'll tell you one great, Steve's story. So he has um, he has three kids. Nick, his oldest, who played basketball at USD and then grad transferred to Cal that year. They got really good with Jalen Brown and Ivan Rab, and you know didn't play much, but closed out his career at Cal and is now working for the Warriors and is a, um, is just a, a really good young man. And then Maddie, his daughter, who was she and Steve were the first guests on my podcast. Uh, Pass it down with my daughter Natalie. Um, and she was a volleyball star at Cal and, in fact, is a year older than Natalie and um, helped convince Natalie to go to Cal and then, you know, had a blast with her there. So uh, great, great kid. She's now at Berkeley Law, um, hopefully getting ready to help save the world. And um, his youngest, Matthew, um, who um, just got out of college, unlike Nick and Maddie, just doesn't care about sports at all. Just not interested might might be able to name half the Warriors I mean loves that his dad loves that his dad wins and you know it, it's fun and you know loves the spectacle but just doesn't pay attention to it doesn't care um and they thought maybe he'd go to school back east like you but he ended up getting into a really prestigious program at USC and deciding to go to SC and so um when Steve's wife Margot told me about it she was really excited like so of course I'm like that's awesome that's so great so then when I talked to Steve about it he was like dude this is great so of course I'm like yeah great that's so great for Matthew I'm so happy for you guys I'll be closer and you know Steve and I grew up going to UCLA games and I rooted for Cal but I also root for UCLA my parents went there and you know we hated SC like hated 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 like and I still do after having gone to Cal they're reprehensible and and back then it was a shitty school so you can really marginalize it it's a good school now so it's not as fun to they're still hateful but at least you don't think they're also dumb uh so anyway um I'm like that's so great I told my family hey Matthew Kerr is going to USC it's Stephen Margo are pumped it's really great and then all of a sudden one day I get a text First, it's a video, and it's it's this weird view of the USC marching band playing one of their reprehensible fight songs, and Steve's like, 
dude, this is the worst fucking thing I've ever experienced. And so he was at orientation with Matthew and the SC band is playing at orientation and Tommy Troj is there. And finally it's like kicked in and he, it's this barrage of texts like, what the fuck am I doing? And I have to pay for this shit. Fuck SC. I hate it. It was just, it was funny. And, you know, because it's Steve, he knows that it's not totally literal. He's doing it for effect. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, he is just such a, um, he's just, you know, the ways you want someone to evolve and, and be, he's really just an impressive person. And, and he's dealing with more adversity physically than people know. And he's, not a whiner and he doesn't complain and he's a lot tougher than I am but uh you know it's um it's just really cool and and I'm fiercely proud of him and by far my best moments when I've gone to Warrior Games over these last few years have been when he gets teed up or ejected and I got to go to a game uh with with my family where sitting with Margo his wife where uh he had to be pulled back by Mike Brown uh, to be restrained from getting a second tee and ejected. And uh, Mike Brown's a big dude and literally like had to pull him back on the bench. And I was, I, I just can't explain how happy I was. It made me so much happier than any, you know, shot or dunk or play. And then afterwards we got to visit with him and Mike Brown was in the coach's room with us. And I was like, dude, I just, I, I have to give you love for, being part of that moment that was and he's like yeah i thought he was gonna squirm away he's kind of like wiry i'm like yeah well you had him yeah i think i think he got the same number of t's in his first season as coach than he as he did in his entire career as a player yeah, <laughs> yeah well, he, he wasn't a fascinating position. life he wasn't in position yeah. as a player to get a t i don't think michael would have uh or you know or tim duncan would have taken kindly to like the eighth guy or the seventh guy, you know, yeah. getting teed up in a tight game. I guess the Bulls were ahead by enough. He probably could have done it. But, you know, Rodman was was soaking up most of the tees. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, sorry, he's, he has such a fascinating life just in terms of who he's been around. My, Alex and I have always wanted to, uh, to talk to him. He's, he just seems like a fascinating – I mean, he seems like the guy that, like, books could be written about, you know, literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, um, he's um, – yeah, I just I, I would like to shatter your illusions on him, but uh no, he's he's awesome. And um you know, um it's it's pretty intense as a lifelong warrior fan to see what they've done. And it, it's just weird. And one of the reasons I kind of um have had an issue with Cleveland fans and it, part of it is that they elaborate, please. Are, part of it is they're really shitty to my friend Hugh and I <laughs> don't like it and um but a Honestly, a lot of it was this. Um, so I, I'm a fan, not of the NFL, but I'm a fan of my kids' teams and the Warriors and the A's because I only covered the NFL and Cal, most of all. And so I know that fans are shitty and crazy, and I know that I'm, I have tendencies too because I am one, but I like to think I'm not as bad as most fans. Like, for example, if you don't pick my team to win or say nice things about them publicly, it – literally doesn't affect me. I don't need the affirmation. If I heard, if Cal was somehow going to go to the Rose Bowl and I heard someone on TV going, they're a joke. They're the worst Pac-12 champion ever. They don't belong in this game. I'd literally be like, that's right. I don't care. I just want to win. I just want to feel that one time and go to the Rose Bowl. I don't 
need you to like it. I don't need you to think it's legitimate. I don't need you to pick us. It, but most fans really do want the affirmation. So here's another way that I think I'm different. Um, so, you know, when I think of that 2016 season, so 2015 was magical. And um, I got to go to game six in Cleveland and the victory party. And it was just, it, it was unbelievable. And then the next year, um, they were playing the Cavs again. But first, they had to play the Thunder. And, uh, you know, they were down 3-1. Mm-hmm. And they, in game six, were probably a step-back Clay Thompson 34-footer not going in at one point from losing the series. And Kevin Durant, I was like, that guy hasn't missed a free throw in seven games. He's unbelievable. I can't – he's unstoppable. Westbrook is insane. I, I respect the Thunder. They're great. And if they win that game or game five or game seven, which I went to, which was close, if they win any of those games, I'm bummed, but I'm not like – I give it up. Go, you know, congrats to the Thunder. They earned it. So when the Warriors heroically won that game six and then came back and won game seven and got to the finals, the way I processed it, and I know my family did, was we overcame something – insane to do that we overcame a 3-1 deficit won that game six on the road so to me this season is always special that we overcame that so then they go they're up 3-1 on the Cavs they Draymond gets suspended I fly out and go to game six and you know Steph throws his mouthpiece and it's uh it's it's ugly early and um and then game seven and you know it's basically one block from behind and uh, and a Kyrie three, which was a great shot, and you know, and it's over. And meanwhile, I always felt for the Cleveland people. I'm like, as a Cal guy, we've never gone to the Rose Bowl in my lifetime, and Cleveland never won anything or it's been for, since the Browns and the you know 50s, and they're always losers. They always choke, and so I always felt like a kinship. So I always thought they'd be like I would be if Cal ever won, which is. Now I could die happy. I don't care about anything else. I don't have an ill word for anyone else. I want, you know, levitate me, carry me off and throw blue and gold flowers at me. Like, it's all good. But they, when they had a chance to finally have that, and they had overcome a 3-1 deficit, just like the Warriors had, which is an epic, epic thing to do. Instead of, this is so great. I love you, Cavs. You're the best. It was the Warriors blow a three-one lead. <laughs> the Warriors blow a three-one lead. <laughs> and I, and incessantly. And I get why. I guess neutral people around the country liked doing that because the Warriors had set a record that year, and they had won it the year before, and it was a lot. And LeBron had done something epic. So I get why people around the country like to say blew a three-one lead, even though I didn't think that way. But the fact that Cleveland people still do it to this day. That's their thing. It's not like, hey, we won one, or LeBron did something epic, or Kyrie hit that shot. It's, ha the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. So I kind of hate them. And now I'm like, fuck you guys. I wish you had never same, won. Same, 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 same. You know, and I hope, I know that if Cal ever wins, I won't be that person. I won't. I just know how I react. And, I, and again, all fans suck. I'm one of them. I have bad tendencies, but I'm not bad on that level. So with all that said, I would just say, you know, um, if you're a Cleveland fan, try to step outside your mind and just don't think like a shithead. Think more. 
think more like a human being who can appreciate joy. And by the way, this is, I'll leave you with this. So um, as fate would have it, right? Yeah, I'm an A's fan and they've been out of it for a while, but as fate would have it, the Cleveland Indians who haven't won a World Series in like a million year, years. Same year. Yeah, as fate would have it, they got, they got up 3-1 on the Chicago Cubs, who are another, another Cal-like team that, you know, losers forever. And then lost 4-3. They blew, blew a 3-1 three three lead. One lead. <laughs> now, to me, as a human, I'm like, well, the Cubs did something epic. They overcame a 3-1 deficit. They won in extras, right? It was crazy. And, you know, credit the Cubs. But I, I also was having fun because, fuck the Cleveland fans. They blew a 3-1 lead. But, but Steve's son, Nick, took it to an even better extreme. Now, Nick uh, was very young when Steve was on the Bulls and so came up as a Cubs fan. Like, he is diehard Nick Kerr, loves the Cubs. You know, since he, his first memories, loves the Cubs more than anything. And so, sure enough, the first time the Warriors went back to Cleveland after the Indians blew the lead was that Christmas game where Kevin Durant got tackled at the end and they didn't call it and, um, and the Cavs won. But the best part of the game was that Nick Kerr showed up courtside wearing a Cubs hat <laughs> at, at, at uh, Quick and Loads Arena. So, I, you know, I, I appreciated the theater very much. I thought that was well right. Mm -hmm. Now, we wanted to shift um, just to back back to football and talk about um, one issue that we both, you know, obviously follow pretty closely, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing and the way that's sort of gone over the last three or four years. Um, yeah. From, from being in the league and, and covering it so much, I guess sort of how have you seen the way he's viewed and the way that whole issue is viewed? How have you seen it change? Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is um, he ever going to play again, ever? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've been on it. I've been – it's one of the one of the – uh, people I'm trying to get a hold of on the phone, uh, not Colin, but um, someone who knows what's going on, and I'm trying to stay on it. Um, it's been a frustrating thing to cover. I mean, um, you know, he... How so? Well, I mean, when you see someone just getting screwed over and you know why, and, and listen, I worked for the National Football League, which is a weird thing, right? As a journalist coming up, that would have been heresy. I never would have worked for the entity I cover, but the world has changed. And I think they know that I just do it my way and I'm a journalist and, it, you know, I'm not going to ever hold back because I work for the NFL, but it's still, it's weird when, you know, you're covering a league that is also owned, you know, with the 32 owners who are also technically your bosses. So um, I have been very open in how I feel about it, which is, it's a joke that he doesn't have a job and we know why. And it's because people don't want to deal with someone who took a knee for social justice and call it what you will. So, um, you know, and you could parse it and say, well, it's a distraction issue or what, but for whatever. There's been much worse wanna, distractions. Than, well, however you want to yeah. say it, he, he took a knee and now he can't get a job. And to make the case that he wasn't one of the best 64 quarterbacks during this span is preposterous. And, and I think everybody who is not being disingenuous understands that. And I know the seven arguments, most of which 
are not factual and the rest of which are flawed in terms of premise or context. I want to have a macro response for them because I just get tired. I get exhausted responding, but so many arguments um, on Twitter, like laying out facts. Yeah, I just, I won't waste your time, but yeah. he, you know, he should have a job. Um, he hasn't. The thing last year was a fiasco. And, and if I would, you know, if I would assign any, um, not blame, but if I would assign any, um, of this to Colin's part, it's that he's not going to be one of these guys who's just like, yes, boss, yes, boss, please give me a job. I'll, you know, I'll do anything. He's kind of going to do it his way. And he's, you know, like many great ones, he's got some high maintenance tendencies. And I thought they were a little high maintenance when it came to the workout. Now he had, he was right. The, the, the workout was stupidly, called and no notice and the conditions were dumb and he should have been able to get his way on some things and I was on his side but I also think like there was a lot of drama associated with it that if you're already dealing with people who don't want your drama and may or may not be you know not racially enlightened or you know certainly not sympathetic to your social justice uh, crusade um, as I am you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it, but a lot of the owners probably aren't, but yeah. you know, then when you are associated with a bunch of drama involving a workout, it just adds to the trepidation. So yeah, I wouldn't say blaming. I'm just saying, I think that's part of the equation that you would put on him. But um, I thought that after the, you know, in the wake of George Floyd and, and the, you know, heightened sense of fighting racism and uh, pushing for racial justice and social justice that came out of that, which was awesome. Um, I thought that there was maybe an opportunity to, um, to have him play. And I still think there is, but, you know, unfortunately, if you're looking for an excuse not to, uh, there are legitimate reasons why it's been harder during the pandemic you couldn't just have a guy in and work him out. And people do want to work out a guy who hasn't played in that long. They want to see him. Um, it, it hurt Cam Newton. It hurt Jadavian Clowney. It still is, you know, coming off injuries. And it, it definitely hurt Kaepernick. Uh, in a normal offseason, someone would have been able to just work him out probably quietly and uh, maybe get a little closer. So um, I, I do think there's a chance that he could get back in or – be offered a chance to get back in. I believe he wants to, um, but it's. Wait, wait, just, 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 and last thing before we wrap up, just you, you, you do believe he wants to from the people that you, that you talked. Yeah, about. yeah, no, he 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 wants to. I he just wants to play. I just, I'm just, I'm just kind of squeamish about talking about. Well, I, I mean, I know some people who are interested. I know that he's into it, like, like, into like, it conceptually. Like, like, like yeah, but it. but I'm just I'm just it's been a long few years and I'm tired of just saying hey, you know this team might want to do it and then we all just sit here and it's like well then why aren't they and so um, I I just want to be very careful about how um, how not excited but how uh, you know optimistic I get that it could happen when um, you know it still hasn't and until it does it's a blight on our sport and our league and uh, it's really stupid and, and it's not going to age well and it's not going to, you know, be looked at well in history. 
Awesome. I know we kept you a few minutes uh, past what we said. But oh, we really it's all good. You. Yeah, we, we, we really appreciate you taking the time. And hopefully this coach calls you back before uh, you go to sleep. And then thank you so much. And it was nice to see mean, your face again. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. So are you a Colts fan? Is that a Colts I, fan? I'm a, so I'm, this is, I know this is weird. I'm a Colts and a 49ers. It's the way my family, like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Do you have some Indiana? Do you have Indiana ties? Exactly. Uh, grandparents yeah. live in Bloomington, so I used to fly there all the time as a kid. And Peyton, like, nice. I just fell in love with him. Like, as such a young kid. Sure. And my dad was uh, a United's fan his whole life, and so then that, that's just kind of how. You yeah. Know, was, you know, but that's kind of how it happened. So. If you're gonna have two teams, that's a good two. That's good separation because they're yeah, you know, exactly. unless they play in a Super Bowl, it's probably not gonna be a thing. Alexander, Steelers, exactly. You and you're Niners, Alexander. You're all Niners. Yeah, I've got the yeah, stuff. I saw people. that. Yeah, and then uh, and you, we were talking about the Packers earlier. You know, I actually we actually did that thing when they went public a couple of years ago where we bought one of the shares. Oh, um, nice. so, so technically, I'm a part owner of the Packers. Nice. Uh, you know, so. Oh, yeah, high level people on this podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. So put in a good word at NFL Network for me. I mean, you know, <laughs> I I I, th I think they let, appreciate what I do, but you know, it can never hurt to have your bosses advocating for you. So no, I'll, I'll I'll talk I'll talk to some people. I'll make I'll make some things happen. Over. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hey, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Good luck. Send me a link so I can clip it for you. Dude, thank you so much. We really appreciate. Yeah. We'll. We'll tweet it out, let you know about it. And All right. Stay strong. Save yeah. the world. And say hi to Greg. Let's, yeah. uh, let, let's end this plague on November 3rd, and then we'll start fighting COVID more earnestly. All right. I like the sound of that. <laughs> All right. Um, tell your mom's hi and everyone. Absolutely. And, uh, talk to you guys soon. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thanks.